0: fell swoop. I encourage you to read through it again and again and again. It's uh, just a great story, and um, it's going to be broken up one week by Easter Sunday in two weeks, because it's going to take me about three to get through it. But um, anyway, uh, we'll cover one part of it today, and then a major part of it next time. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll detour, I suppose. I'm tempted to keep going, but I'll detour for Easter, and then um, come back and finish it up after that. There's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can get up get one now if you'd like, or uh, just grab one on the way out. And those are also online, and um, you can even read it on your device online. I suppose if you go on the church Wi-Fi. John 9, 1 through 12, Jesus passed by. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. So he went away and washed and Came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. And still others were saying, No, it's like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the one. So they were saying to him, Well, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. And so I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. One time I heard the uh, comedian Bill Cosby tell about a time he was staying in the same hotel uh, with um, the blind singer Ray Charles. He decided to go up to Ray's room and uh, pay him a visit. And so he knocked on the door and Ray yelled, come on in. And Cosby opened the door and he walked in and he could hear Ray in the bathroom shaving with an electric razor. And the place was pitch black. There wasn't a light on anywhere in that hotel room. And he walked in and was kind of stopped short and... He he blurted out, Ray, why are you shaving in the dark? And then it hit him. And he thought, dumb, dumb, dumb. And Ray just good-naturedly said, "Uh, I I do everything in the dark, brother. You know, I heard that story many decades ago, and it it has stuck with me over the years because I am so often like Cosby. Cosby. On that occasion, where I encounter people in the world, people that live in utter spiritual blindness and darkness, and I kind of view them as if they can see, and I forget how desperately needy they are for the light. We've seen in our studies in this gospel, John loves symbolism, and he uses the light-darkness symbol quite often. He, he started out with it in chapter 1, verses 3 and uh, 4, or 4 and 5, where he says that Jesus is the light of men. And then he adds that that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then in chapter 3 he said this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And then we saw in chapter 12 that in connection with the Jewish ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would light these giant lanterns in the temple to commemorate the um, pillar of fire that accompanied Israel in the wilderness... In that connection, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And now, in chapter 9, in verse 5, when the disciples and Jesus encounter this man who has been born blind, he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We'll also see that The theme comes up again in chapter 12. But then the light of the world proceeds to open the eyes of this man born blind and give him the light of day. And uh, before the chapter is out, he will have not only physical light, but spiritual light. He'll come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then, ironically, there's a twist at the end of the chapter where the proud Pharisees who say, we're not blind, are we? And Jesus will say to them, if you were blind, then maybe you could see. But as it is, no, your blindness remains, and they go off in darkness. A.W. Pink always has a lot of good insights, and uh, he pointed out some contrast between John 8 and 9 that I probably wouldn't have seen on my own. But in John 8, he says we see Christ as the light exposing the darkness, whereas in John 9, he imparts sight both physically and spiritually to this man who was in the darkness. In John 8, the light is despised and rejected, whereas in John 9, the light is believed in and worshiped. In John 8, the Jews stoop to pick up stones to kill the light of the world, whereas in John 9, the light of the world stoops to make clay to anoint the eyes of this blind man to give light. In John 8, um, Jesus hides himself from the Jews, whereas in John 9, he reveals himself to this blind beggar. In John 8, in verse 37, Jesus says that his word has No place in the Jews. In John 9, verse 7, this blind beggar obeys Jesus' word without question. In John 8, Jesus is called a demoniac. In John 9, Jesus is worshipped as Lord. And so in our text, the message for us is that since Jesus is the almighty Savior, the one who can open blind eyes for God's glory, We should really labor to point people to Him. And there are four great things I want to point out to you in these verses. There's a great need. There's a great Savior. There is a great purpose. And there's a great urgency. First of all, let's look at the great need, which is that the world is spiritually blind, and that from birth. I think this blind man is a picture of every person since Adam and Eve fell into sin because the world says or I mean the word says we are all born into sin. We are born so that we cannot see spiritual truth. This man could not see Jesus if he walked by just a few feet away. And the world in sin cannot see Jesus as the light of the world unless he opens their eyes. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, and here Paul reverts back to Genesis when God said, let there be light. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And what those verses are saying is that lost people don't just need a little bit more information so they can make an informed decision to believe in Christ. It's far worse than that. Lost people need a miraculous, powerful work of God to open their blind eyes so that they can see. The disciples' view of this man was, here's an interesting theological case study. They asked the Lord in verse 2, A Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? I presume they said that as they saw him. And really, it was very rude and cruel to do that because, as you know, blind people have an acute sense of hearing. That's all they've got for figuring out what's going on, hearing and touch. And they can hear very well. And if they said that within this man's hearing, it was really... Very insensitive. But they reflect the Jewish view that there was a direct correlation between sin, suffering. One-on-one. You sin, you suffer. That's how Job's comforters came to him, you know. Come on, Job, fess up. You must have done something to deserve all these terrible things that have happened to you. Now, of course, all suffering and, and death in the world comes from original sin, from Adam and Eve's sin. But the Bible is very clear that sometimes, yes, God uses it in a direct correlation. You know, you did wrong, you suffer the consequences of the wrong in some kind of suffering. But not always. And the book of Job, of course, proves that often the righteous suffer, not because they did something, but for some other purpose. But the disciples here buy into the popular view. And since this man was born blind, they conclude either his parents or the man himself sinned. Now you say, well, wait a minute. How can a guy who's born blind have already sinned to deserve blindness? Well, there were several possible answers for that in the Jewish milieu of the day. Uh, One was some rabbis taught that babies could sin in the womb. And their case study there was Jacob and Esau. You remember how Jacob and Esau struggled in the womb, it says? And so they concluded the brothers were already fighting. You know how kids fight. They were already fighting in the womb, and so people can sin before they're born. That's one view. Uh, There was another erroneous view that some Jews bought into, that the soul preexists the body. That's simply not true. Souls come into being when we are conceived. Uh, And then there was a third erroneous view, and that still is with us today, and it's the view called reincarnation, that people recycle. You know, they do bad in one life, so they come back in a suffering in this life and that, and that's just flat-out false. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, Now, the Bible does teach, well, Jesus here just says neither. You know, he didn't sin to be born this way. Now, about the parents... In this case, Jesus says no. But the Bible does teach children can sin, I mean, suffer because of parents' sin. Um, we see that all around us today. We'll, we'll see kids that are born to a drug addicted or alcohol addicted uh, mother or a mother with AIDS. Well, the kids suffer physical and uh, emotional uh, damage because of that. Or we've all encountered kids who have been abused, either physically or emotionally or sexually, as children. And uh, they suffer horribly because of their parents' sins. And so we could go on and on with examples. But Jesus says, no, in this case, uh, while certainly the man was a sinner and his parents were sinners, we all are, Jesus says there's no direct correlation here. There's another purpose. But my point here is uh, this man was very needy, born blind, never had seen, lived every day in this dark world, and he pictures our world, a world of people who are in spiritual darkness. They have no hope. They don't know Christ. And uh, we need to see people that way. Often, unbelievers present an outward confidence, togetherness. They're successful. You know, maybe they are rich, and they've accomplished this and that, and you tend to think, oh, they're good people. Well, humanly, yes, but remember, they're like Ray Charles in that story. They're blind. They're shaven in the dark, and they do everything in the dark, and they need what we have to give them, and that leads to the second great thing here, and that is the great Savior. Jesus is the almighty savior, the one who can open blind eyes. And in this story, the beggar doesn't take the initiative. Now, blind Bartimaeus, another blind man that Jesus healed, he hears Jesus is coming and he can't be quiet. You know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone says, shut up, phone down. Makes him yell louder. You know, he's going for it. This guy, Jesus could have walked right on by him and he never knew it. But Jesus saw him, verse 1. He saw a man, and uh, it doesn't say it, but I am convinced that Jesus saw the man as he saw all needy people. He saw him with eyes of compassion because Jesus always looked on the needy with compassion, like sheep without a shepherd. And he is the one who came to seek and save the lost, and so he reaches out to this helpless man and grants him this wonderful gift of sight. You know, put yourself, none of us can, because none of us were born blind here, I don't think, but just imagine how this man must have felt. He gets up another day, another day of begging. He kind of wraps his tattered garment around him after he eats his bread or whatever he has, and he, he stumbles out the door and wanders over to his familiar spot and sits down. Now, you say, well, how did the disciples know that he was born blind? Well, to me, it's pretty easy to explain. Uh, You see people on the street corner here with the sign, you know, homeless, help. They're advertising their need, right? Well, I'm sure that this man probably sat there every day, and to garner sympathy, he would yell out, I was born blind, please help. Born blind, born blind. And so people would come by and drop a few coins in his little basket or something. And he would then go to the store and buy some more bread to survive one more day. But this day, the stranger anoints him. And he goes and washes. And he sees. I just can't imagine the emotion of that. You know? I got a thing in the mail. I think it was just yesterday. Um a doctor who's trying to raise money because he says for $300, he can do an operation on little kids that are blind where they, within a day after the operation, they can see. And he made a comment in the letter and he said, every time I do one of these operations, I cry. And I thought, yeah, I can see why you would. What a thing. You know, somebody that's totally blind all his life, for the first time he sees his parents, He sees his neighbors. He sees everything. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. That'll be next time, or actually the third time that we'll look at this. But he sees. Now, you have to ask the question as you read this story, well, why did Jesus use this unusual means? You know, he spits on the ground, he makes mud and puts it on the guy's eyes and says, go and wash. It would have been much simpler if Jesus just said, see. And he could have done that. He did that with the man at the pool that was lame. Rise, take up your bed and walk. The guy did it. He'll do that in chapter 11 with Lazarus. You know, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man gets up and walks out of the tomb. He could have done that here. So why does he do it this way? Well, uh, John doesn't tell us. And so everything we venture is speculation. Perhaps one of the best was some of the early church fathers speculated that the mention of clay from the ground... Uh, recalls Genesis 2-7 where God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him life and so on. And so John may be using this to recall to us what he said in chapter 1, verse 3, that apart from him, nothing was made that was made, that Jesus is the almighty creator. That's a good guess. Uh, There have been other suggestions. But definitely John wants us to see some significance to the name of this pool, because he translates it for his Greek readers who didn't know Aramaic or Hebrew. He says, to the pool, Salome, and John, in parentheses, writes, which is translated, sent. Now, Jesus was sent by the Father. John emphasizes that over and over. In chapter 8, it was in verse 16, verse 18, verse 26, Verse 29 and verse 42, and here we see it again in chapter 9, verse 4, when Jesus says, "...the one who sent me." So, there's this big emphasis on that. Also, as we saw in chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish priest would go to the Pool of Scent, the Siloam, and he would draw water and in procession carry it back to to the temple, pour it out at the base of the altar... And it was a picture of the water that God provided for Israel from the rock in the wilderness. Jesus, on that occasion, you'll remember, stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow these rivers of living water. And then John explains this he spoke of the Spirit. And so it pictures the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It pictures the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so this blind man goes to the scent pool, and washes, and he sees. And I think John wants us to see, are you spiritually blind? You can come to the one who was sent by God and wash in Jesus, and you will see. He will give you spiritual sight. Now, there's another lesson, I think, in the way Jesus did this miracle. It's unique in all of the Gospels, and uh, I think it tells us that when we deal with souls, we're dealing with individuals and there's no cookie cutter approach. Jesus never dealt with the same with with two people the same way. Because people are individuals. He always dealt with them differently, didn't he? With one this way, with one that way, different. Now, here's how to apply that. I think it's good that you learn a gospel presentation, okay? Memorize it. So that you understand when you have an encounter with someone, here's how to share the good news of Christ with that person. That's good. What's not good is if you just use it as a crank up the machine, blur out the message, you're done. you know, And it's impersonal. You, you've got to tailor it to every person. Some need to hear grace. Some need to hear judgment. And you have to be sensitive to the individual and pray for wisdom that God would let you tailor it to them. Um, Another reason, and I think this is the main reason Jesus did the miracle this way, we read in chapter 9, verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. John almost says that offhandedly, like, oh, by the way, I think that's the key. Why? Because Jesus, in the way he did this miracle, was deliberately violating the Pharisees' rules about the Sabbath. Uh, They had a rule, number one, you couldn't knead bread on the Sabbath. And by making clay, I'm sure they would have said, oh, he's kneading, He, he broke the Sabbath. There were rules against anointing on the Sabbath. Jesus anointed his eyes and said, go wash. There were rules against healing on the Sabbath. You could heal if it was life-threatening. But if it could wait till the next day, you're supposed to wait. Jesus did this on the Sabbath, and the man was not threatened by life. He'd lived this way all his life. So I think that Jesus made the clay, anointed the man... Told him to go wash. Maybe that was even breaking the Sabbath on a Sabbath day's journey. I don't know. But he told him to do that. To poke his thumb deliberately in the eye of these religious legalists. Because they thought that by keeping their rules, they had it. And they had no relationship with God. And you know the sad thing in this whole story when this blind man comes seeing, not one Pharisee recorded says, praise God, isn't this wonderful? Hallelujah, bro, we rejoice with you. Nothing. say, like, He healed on the Sabbath. He broke our rules. You know, they're into rules. And Jesus was slamming them because these aren't God's rules. Jesus was all for obeying God's word. But so often we pile on the non-biblical rules and then take pride in keeping them. And Jesus was all about confronting that sort of thing. So they get in this argument, we'll see next time, the Pharisees about, oh, I think Jesus is a sinner. I think he's sent from God and all of that. They should have seen, we're looking at Messiah here. You know why? In the Old Testament, Opening blind eyes was a messianic activity. Messiah could do it. There is no example in the Old Testament of the blind scene except one time when Elisha momentarily blinded the eyes of the Syrian army, led them to the king of Israel, and then opened their eyes, prayed for their eyes to be opened. But there is no example of a man born blind being healed in the Old Testament. And only the Lord and Messiah, who is the Lord, could do it. Let me show you some verses. Psalm 146 and verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29, 18 says, On that day, pointing ahead to the day of Messiah, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And then in Isaiah 35, 5, after saying that God will come and save his people, the prophet says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Remember when John the Baptist got thrown in prison, and John was only human. He was the messenger, the forerunner of Messiah, but he's in prison, and he's not getting out of prison. And he's beginning to wonder... Is Jesus the Messiah or not? And so he sends a delegation to Jesus, and they ask on John's behalf in Matthew eleven three, 3, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answers in the next verse this way, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. There it is. The blind receive sight. And the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus was referring back to Isaiah 35, and John the Baptist loved Isaiah, so he would have made the connection. Jesus is saying, John, I am the one that Isaiah spoke of. And then another in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, God here is speaking to his servant the Messiah, and God says this, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, notice, as a light to the nations to open blind eyes. And it's interesting, if you count up, Jesus did 35 specific miracles that are recorded. Now, he did many, many others where it says he healed their sick all day long, that kind of thing. But there are 35 recorded miracles of Jesus in the Gospels more are opening the eyes of the blind than any other category. Than raising up the lame, opening the ears of the deaf, raising the dead. There's three of those. I think there's four of opening the eyes of the blind. And the point is, the Jewish leaders who knew the Old Testament should have connected the dots and went, hold on, guys, this is Messiah doing this. And of course, that's John's point. He wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, my point here is it takes a great Savior to open blind eyes physically, but I believe the spiritual miracle is even greater. And he's still in the business of doing that. He opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind, as we saw in Second Corinthians 4, 6, God shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you ever get the opportunity, as I pray you do often, to talk to people about the Savior, make sure you keep the discussion on the Savior. Because, invariably, you'll find unbelievers want to go off on rabbit trails. Well, what about evolution? You know, or what about all the suffering in the world? How can God allow that? Or or what about this or that? You know, you might need to briefly respond to those things, but quickly get it back to, you know, I was talking to you about Jesus. And who do you think Jesus is? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? And focus on the fact that Jesus is a mighty savior and you're spiritually blind, you're a sinner and you need somebody who can open your eyes and Jesus is the only one with the power to open the blind eyes of those who are born blind. And of course, as you're talking to him, pray like crazy, Lord, break through here, break through. So this story shows us, first of all, this great need The world is born in spiritual blindness. It shows us this great Savior. Jesus is the one who can open the blind eyes. And then it shows us the great purpose. And that is that the primary aim of the gospel is to display the glory of God. In response to this theological question that the disciples ask in verse 2, Jesus answers in verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I read some commentators this week who have a big problem with that. If they try and explain, Jesus doesn't mean that this man was born blind so that God's works could be displayed in him. It sounds like that's what it means, and I have no problem with that's what it means. But they think, oh, that's cruel. I think they have too big a view of man, too little a view of God, because... God is glorious. And if God can get glory through my suffering and even through my death, like Paul said in Philippians 1, you know, Christ might even now as always be exalted in me, whether by my life or by my death, then that's, that gives eternal significance to my suffering. In, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul put it like this. He said, For momentary light affliction... I don't know if he said that tongue-in-cheek, but you know what his light affliction was? You ever read the list of what the man went through? You know, beaten, times without number, shipwrecked three times, stoned once and left for dead. Uh, Dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen. He goes on and on, you know, 2 Corinthians 11. But momentary light affliction, Paul says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Jonathan Edwards argued in his treatise on the end for which God created the world, that God created the world for his own glory. And Edwards argues, since God is infinitely glorious, it would be wrong if he didn't do everything for his own glory, because then he should be glorifying whoever's more glorious than he is. And he is deserving of all glory because he is infinitely glorious. And And Edwards also argues very brilliantly that there is no disparity between God's glory and our happiness. John Piper explains it. He says we glorify God the most when we're most satisfied in him. And so God designed it so that his glory and our happiness are inextricably tied together. And If God can be glorified through the physical healing of this blind man, then it's quite right that he does it. And I'm sure the blind man was saying, praise God, I was blind, so that now God gets the glory. God gets glory through our suffering in one of two ways. Either he heals us, as he did this man, and then we just tell everyone, wow, God healed me. Or he gives us unusual grace to endure the suffering and he gets glory that way. Remember Paul with his thorn in the flesh and he cries out, God, take it away. And God says to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, then I'll glory in my weakness. I'll just glory in my suffering and God will be glorified through the strength he gives me to endure this. And you know, the healing of this blind man pictures what happens when God saves a soul through the gospel. People who were in sin, they were lost. They didn't deserve to be healed of that condition because they willfully sinned. And yet he, he opens their eyes. And you know what happens He gets the glory, and the sinner gets the blessing. And that happens every time when the gospel connects with someone. God is glorified, and the sinner is blessed. And and the gospel is not mainly about how God can give you a happy life for your own sake. Yes, he gives you a happy life, but the gospel is about how God can give you a happy life So that you, as as Peter puts it, can proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it's all about God's glory. That's our great purpose in everything is, how can this bring glory to God? How can that trial bring glory to God? How can my salvation bring glory to God? And it's all about glorifying God. And this blind man does that. We'll see it unfold as the chapter goes on. But... It's obvious in the verses we read, here is a changed man. He is so changed, some of his neighbors say, that's not him. Oh, yes, it is. No, it's not. It couldn't be. And he's standing by the side saying, it's me. <laughs> it's me, guys. I'm the one. And I'm sure his face was beaming and maybe tears streaming down his face as he says, yep, I'm the guy who used to sit and beg. And then they want to know, well, well, how did your eyes get healed then? And he doesn't know a whole lot at this point. The beautiful thing about this guy, his testimony grows as the chapter grows. And and he's just simple and honest. Here, all he knows is there was a man named Jesus and he anointed my eyes with clay and then told me to go wash. And I did what he said and I see. Simple. That's it. And later, He's going to argue with the Pharisees. Right now, he doesn't even know who Jesus is or where he's at. Uh, He hasn't seen him yet. But he's going to go argue with the Pharisees, and they'll say, Who do you think he is? And he's "He's a prophet. (laughs) And then they're going to argue with him and try and talk him out of it. And he's going to get a little bolder yet. And by the end of the chapter, we're going to see him worshiping Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's a beautiful unfolding as the chapter goes on. But you know, the point is, as we grow in Christ, our changed lives ought to give glory to the Lord so that people say, are you the same person (laughs) that I used to know? Yep, I'm the one. How did you do this? How did you change? Well, let me tell you about the Savior. And that leads to the last point, and that's the great urgency. There's a great need out there. There's a great Savior out there. We have a great purpose to glorify him. But then there's this great urgency that we should labor to point people to Jesus for God's glory while we still have time to do it. Now, if you have a King James, I've got to correct it here at this point. There's a better manuscript reading in verse 4. Verse 4 should read, We, King James says I, We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And so Jesus includes the disciples in his fellow laborers who have to work for Christ. And that includes you, if you know Christ. Put yourself in the we there. We must work the works of the one who sent Jesus. It's the same harvest mindset that I pointed out back in chapter 4. Jesus is sitting by the well. The disciples go to buy lunch. They come back, and, and they say, Rabbi, eat your lunch. You know, they're, they're focused horizontally. Eat your lunch. We've got a lot of miles to cover today. We need to get on the road. You know, let's get down to business here, Lord. And the Lord responds by saying, I've got food to eat you guys don't even know about. And they're going, did somebody give him food? You know, they're still on this horizontal plane. And then Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And, of course, that's the work the disciples should have had the the eyes for, the harvest. uh, Getting that harvest mindset, and that should be the focus of all that follow him. Now, notice the little word must in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. It's a word of divine necessity. We saw it back in chapter 4 with the woman at the well where it said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And in English, it's a different word, but in Greek, it's the same word. Had, must, it's that necessity. You say, well, why did he have to go through Samaria? He could have gone around, yes. No, he had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with that woman and the villagers there. And here... Although the Pharisees were threatening to kill Jesus, and we don't know how much of a time gap there is between chapter 8 and 9, but his death is just months ahead. But he says, I must work the works of the one who sent me. Do you have the same necessity in your life? Whatever else I do, I must do the work that God's given me to do in this life. You know, there's this mindset, "Oh, if you have some spare time, would you please volunteer for the church? We so need workers." Baloney. Get rid of that. If that's your mindset, please don't serve. We don't need people who got some spare time and nothing better to do. We need people who say, "I must." I must. God's got his hand on my life and I've got to serve him. It's you're part of the body. If you believe in Jesus and every body part has to work. Mine are starting to fail in a few places and I know it, you know, but it's better when every body part does its thing and works. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but you know, I don't, I'm not very gifted. You're in danger. Remember the parable of the talents? Who was the guy that buried it? He was only given one. He thought, oh, that's not much. So he wraps it all up, buries it, and gives it back to the master. And the master had some rather scary things to say to that servant. And the lesson is, if you think you're not very gifted, man, you're the one that needs to get involved in serving the Lord. And notice the urgency here that Jesus puts on it. In verse 4, night is coming. When no one can work. He's talking about death. His death is just months ahead. When Judas would go out of that upper room and John says, it was night. Jesus was going to die. And you or I don't know how long we have. I could die today. I could die tomorrow. I might live for 30 years. I doubt it. But, you know, we don't know. We don't know how long we have. Night is coming. And even if you have a long life, I'll guarantee you, it goes by fast. I just had a birthday this week, and good night, I think. Look in the mirror. Who is this guy? How did I get to be that old? I don't know. James puts it this way, James 4.14. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Or Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And that phrase, making the most of your time, could rightly be translated, buying up the opportunities. You know, when you see a bargain and you think, this isn't going to be here very long, you're at a yard sale. You grab it. It's the idea. You see an opportunity for the Lord, grab it. Could be gone tomorrow. Get it now. My folks used to have on the door, on the wall by our door, the familiar plaque, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And, you know, to look for and take advantage of opportunities to serve the Lord, whether it's to share the good news with a neighbor or a coworker, whether it's to be involved in the body here, serving in our nursery, in our children's ministry, in some other practical way that we need help. Just, it's the necessity, and you got a short window to do it. Do it to the Lord. Robert Louis Stevenson, the famous author, was 12 years old, and he was, Standing upstairs, looking out the window into the dark night. And in those days, the streetlights were not electric that popped on at night. They had to be hand-lit by a man with a torch. And he was watching as the man went down the street lighting the street lamps. And his governess came into the room and asked him what he was doing. And he said, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And isn't that our job? to cut holes in the darkness. We live in a dark and needy world and blind people in that world need the light. And we've got the light, the Savior, and we do it for His glory. So there's this great need. People are blind. There's this great Savior. There's a great purpose, His glory, and there's a great urgency to tell them. And the, the wonderful thing is He can use each of us while it's still day, to spread the word, to spread the light, before night comes when no one can work. Father, I pray that you would shine your light into every heart here, if any are here, without the light of Jesus. That you would show them their need. That they are spiritually blind. That you would show them their impotence to do anything about it that you would show them Christ's sufficiency, that he is a great savior to all who call upon him, and that in your mercy you would open their blind eyes. And Lord, I pray you would use this body in a powerful way in this city, that we would see people in darkness coming to the light, and that we all would be engaged in doing your work as long as we have daylight, knowing that night is coming when no one can work. And we'll give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, conclude by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And if you're a visitor with us, we hand out the elements, hold them till all are served, and then I'll lead us. If you know Christ in a saving way, as I've explained, then you're welcome to join us. And... um, And then just use the time while the elements are distributed to go before the Lord. Paul says to examine your heart, confess any sins to the Lord, and then just meditate on his goodness and thank him for all that he has done for you. And I'll lead us in a moment. Glory. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What a wonderful hymn. The elements, of course, picture the fact that Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice given on the cross for our sins. And that just as it's easy and free to partake of the bread and wine. So it is to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Father, we give you thanks for this bread, for Jesus, who completed all that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to. Thank you that he covered all our sin in his death on the cross and that now we have righteousness in and through him. So we partake, Lord, with great thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake of the bread. Thank you, Father, for the cup of the new covenant in Jesus' blood shed for the remission of sins. Thank you that there is no further sacrifice needed. And thank you that Jesus is such a complete Savior that he loved us with that love. So, Lord, we give thanks in his name. Amen. Let's partake. We're going to conclude by taking an offering, and if you're a visitor, we don't expect you to give. We have a little gift bag for you. If you're a first-time visitor, it's through these doors, and if you'd be kind enough to fill out the uh, welcome card and drop it in the slot by the gift basket there, um, we'll send you a card. We won't put you on a mailing list or anything, and uh, just our way of saying thank you for coming, and it gives some information about the church, and there's a free CD in there, and um, the others of you, if you have a prayer need, you can write it on the welcome card and drop it in the offering, and we'll pray for you, or if you want to communicate with a pastor, we'll be glad to respond. We're going to stand and just sing this great old hymn that was written by a blind man who saw the light, actually, not literally blind, but John Newton was a slave trader and a drunken sailor. He met Christ came a pastor and he wrote this familiar hymn amazing grace
1: sing uh, just these next two songs really about not just that we come to faith, but that that we come to God and we give our whole selves to Him. Trampling over death by death, come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with Him again. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. world reveals and wars to own all I once thought gain I have counted lots spent and worthless now compared